This is Being Catholic with Bob Johnston on Catholic Spirit Radio. Hi, this is Bob Johnston, and you're listening to Being Catholic right here on Catholic Spirit Radio, 89.5 FM and 92.5 FM in good old McLean County in Bloomington Normal, 88.3 in Pontiac, 97.1 in Lincoln, 89.1 in DeKalb Sycamore, 89.3 in Morris Joliet, and 88.9 in Rockford, Marengo, Harvard, Beloit, covering much of central Illinois and uh, also northern Illinois and still growing, thanks to you. We're going to have a great show for you today. I'm here with my wife, Lynn. And remember always that we are brought to you by you, and we couldn't bring this program or any of our other programs to you wherever you're at without your help. So any donations that you can make are always appreciated. And you need to make a donation now. And the best way to make a donation is go to our website, and that's catholicspiritradio.com. Again, that's catholicspiritradio.com. And if you go to that website, you'll find out a lot more about us, and it will tell you there how to make a donation and make it very, very easy to do. You can also call us at 309-807-2427 if you wish. Again, that's 309-807-2427. And uh, remember, uh, it's uh, already <laughs> Lent's upon us. Uh, we're going to Lent is going to be starting here Wednesday, and that is the 14th, Valentine's Day. So we're going to have a Lent start and Valentine's Day at the same time. And uh, I'm going to turn this over to my wife. She is going to talk just a little bit about uh, Valentine's Day. I think so. Uh, Lynn, go ahead. Well, Saint Valentine was a bishop in the church, the early church. And he was martyred about the year 270 A.D. He was beheaded. This is during one of the, uh, you know, the Roman Empire was persecuting the Christians. He was beheaded. His head is the bones, the skull bones are kept in veneration of the saint. And how, I don't know how he, I always got him mixed up with St. Nicholas. St. Nicholas was also a bishop, but Nicholas would pay the dowries of uh, young women that couldn't afford the dowry to get married. But uh, St. Nicholas, I thought he did, uh, St. Valentine, I thought he did the same thing, but he didn't. He was a great man for healing and helping the people during the persecution. And uh, St. Valentine's Day falls on the day when birds start to mate and build their nests, is an old saying. That's about what I know about him. Okay, that's in, in Old English, that would be from Chaucer. He talks about uh, when the birds nest. And uh, in Chaucer, it would be when Shemala fala mock and melodia and schlepping all the nish with apania. And yeah. I mean, when small birds sleep all night with their eyes open and make melody, then, you know, that's when spring comes. Yeah. yeah and that's, uh, that was, uh, well, I shouldn't say Old English, Middle English. <laughs> old English is a little bit more dramatic right. than that. I think he wrote little notes to people. And uh, this is how it eventually evolved into saying va- sending valentines to everybody. But I think uh, this year it's really unique. I can't remember Valentine's Day and the beginning of Ash Wednesday 
uh, beginning of Lent coming at the same time. Can you? No, I don't. I don't remember that either. It wasn't too long ago that, uh, what was it, Easter and uh, I think April Fool's. April Fool's Day fell on the same day. That's, you know, I think within the last five or six years, I think maybe, maybe a little bit longer. I'm not sure, but somewhere in there. And uh, that seemed a little bit strange too, but uh, now this, yeah, this, I, I, I think I would remember it if it happened before, and I just don't. Yeah, yeah, I don't remember it happening, but you know, probably did. I mean, the yeah, calendar is, and we're in a leap year, and everything is crazy. Yeah, so that's yeah. true. But uh, at any rate, it's uh, interesting. And, of course, St. Valentine's Day and the custom is a wonderful custom and uh, it should be kept. Uh, I know one thing that we, we vowed never to do. <laughs> Remember, we had two disasters in trying to go out and eat on Valentine's Day. Oh, Lord. <laughs> it was so crowded in one place. I mean, you, even though you had reservations, you couldn't get served. And another time, we didn't have reservations. And remember, I wouldn't give up. <laughs> we went oh, everywhere, man. and we finally ended up at a place where it was a buffet, and the food, and there was hardly anybody there. You know, I said, "Oh, luck!" You know, there's not not too bad. And the food had been sitting there all day long. Remember, the waitress sort of tried to discourage. Yes, us, but right. I wasn't going to be discouraged. I remember, and then I, was, I said, "That's it. From now on, we're going out on Valentine's Day. We'll go out the weekend before, the weekend after." Whatever, but we're not going out on Valentine's Day anymore. No, and he wouldn't give up. I think we drove a hundred miles in a circle trying yeah. to find some place to eat. Yeah, <laughs> and I said, "Why don't we go home and have a pizza?" Yeah. <laughs> oh no, gonna we, I, we're gonna do this. And then another time it was Mother's Day, I think, or Father's Day, Mother's Day. Same thing happened. That was the end of that. Don't go on a Mother's Day either. Yeah, we sort of sold ourselves out of going out on some of these holidays. Yeah, even New Year's. We, we went out, though. Too many people. We just didn't go out on that day. We, <laughs> we substituted another day for it, and I think we enjoyed it better. Oh, yes. So. Definitely. But at any rate, uh, if uh, there isn't anything more on that line, I'm going to read today a, uh, a story, and uh, it's... Uh, a very, very uplifting story, and it's a story of courage and heroism, and I think you really enjoy the story, and uh, it's just something I think that from our, our past and something that we need to recover and recapture uh, again today, it, uh, I think, relates to Catholicism in the sense that uh, we can talk a little bit about uh, just war theory after the article is over, if we had time. But uh, it's, it's a war story, and it's about heroism, and uh, it's about a particular hero, and probably that most people haven't heard of. And it's something I think that we need to recover, especially in this day and age, that uh, there are things that are worth defending and worth fighting for. And uh, the, the Catholic Church itself, of course, uh, in its history, many times it had to fight for its survival and uh, it, it, it warriors in the Catholic Church flourished, flourished over the history. And people that aren't familiar with the, the history of the Catholic Church should read, you know, books uh, on the history of the Catholic Church. Uh, you'll find those, some of those, I've mentioned some of them before. Triumph is one of the ones by uh, an author, uh, Cro last name Crocker. If you can get that book, Triumph, 
it's about a 400, 500 page book that compresses uh, Catholicism into uh, the history of Catholicism into four or 500 pages. And those pages are dynamic pages. Yeah, very very good readable. Very, very readable. And it keeps you interested and it's uh, very exciting. And you'll find a lot of uh, the, the, what it, it took place, uh, battles and so forth, and the warriors, the Catholic warriors out throughout history that uh, preserved the church for us. And uh, we need to look at some of our heroes uh, in this country as well that preserved our freedom for us. And so this is a story about that, and I'm going to read it, and I hope uh, everybody out there enjoys it. It's uh, written by Roger D. McGrath, and it's in the uh, issue of Chronicles Magazine, a magazine of American culture. It's a January 2024 issue of Chronicles Magazine. And uh, that is put out, the magazine, by the Charlemagne Institute. And Charlemagne, back around, I think around 700 A.D., somewhere right in there around the 7th, 8th century. I can't, I don't have it right in front of me, but uh, Charlemagne was one of the great warriors of the Catholic Church uh, who defended uh, and saved uh, the, the Roman Church from, from a lot of its enemies. It was on the verge of being wiped out or going extinct. And Charlemagne with his army came in and preserved it. And the story just of Charlemagne himself and what, you know, what the, the story of Christianity is certainly worth reading. So it's uh, appropriate that this story appears in Chronicles because of the Charlemagne Institute. So I'll go ahead and read from it. It's the Marine Corps answer to James Bond and, uh, the story is being told here by the writer Roger D. McGrath, and he, he writes regularly for Chronicles, and uh, he writes a lot about American history, and this is one of those great stories, and he likes to write about a lot of uh, uh, war-type war things and uh, uh, a lot of uh, adventure and so forth, and a very good writer along that line. It says here, Peter Ortiz is almost unknown outside the Marine Corps. Even within the Corps, he doesn't have the recognition he deserves, although his exploits in World War II were almost beyond belief. Born in New York City in 1913, the future Marine hero was Kristen Pierre Julian Ortiz. And I do believe that he probably was Catholic. I couldn't find that out. We looked up uh, as much as we could of his history and so forth and found a lot. But uh, I couldn't find out for sure if he was Catholic. I would guess he was. Uh, simply by where he was born, who his mother and father were, but uh, I'm not absolutely sure on that. It says his mother was an American of Swiss-German descent and his father French. Ortiz was reared mostly in the United States, but partly in France, and grew up speaking English, French, and German. He later acquired fluency in Spanish and Arabic and conversational proficiency in Italian and Portuguese. After attending grammar school in America, he was sent off to a prep school in France. Upon graduation, he was off to college at the University of Grenoble. Inspired by years of reading of tales of adventure, Ortiz dropped out of college after a year and joined the French Foreign Legion in 1932. He was only 19. Yeah, 19. After basic training at the Legion's boot camp in Algeria, he was, he was then posted to Morocco. His father, a prosperous and well-connected figure in France, arrived in Morocco to buy Ortiz out of the Legion. The now 19-year-old Corporal Ortiz would have none of it. 
There's adventure aplenty for our teas in North Africa, provided by groups of rebels, Bedouin and Berber tribesmen, bandits and pirates. He fought in several engagements and was wounded in one of them. For his valor, he was awarded the Croix de Gois twice and the military medal once. By the end of his five-year enlistment, he was the commander of an armored car unit with the rank of Brevet Second Lieutenant. And Brevet, usually, I think Brevet means uh, when you get a battlefield uh, promotion. Is, uh, That's true. what it means. And it says, uh, <clears throat> offered a regular rank of lieutenant if he would enlist for another five years, Ortiz instead headed for Hollywood. With his foreign legion experience and his chest full of medals, he quickly found work as a technical advisor for movies with a military or North, Ameri- or North African theme. When war erupted in Europe in September 1939, Ortiz quit Hollywood, flew to France, and again enlisted in the legion. Given the rank of sergeant, he was soon in the thick of the fighting. In May 1940, he was awarded a battlefield commission as a lieutenant for his leadership and valor. During a French retreat in June, Ortiz learned that a storage dump of gasoline had not been set ablaze. He sped to the dump on the motorcycle and lit the fuel on fire. Racing away, he was struck by a German bullet, which penetrated his hip and grazed his spine. Temporarily paralyzed, he crashed the motorcycle and was captured. For torching the dump, he was later awarded his third Croix de Gois. Lieutenant Ortiz spent the next 15 months in POW camps, first in Germany, then in Poland, and finally in Austria. His third attempt succeeded when he disappeared from the Austrian camp in October 1941. Aided by partisans along the way, he arrived in Portugal at the end of November. Both the Free French and the British had clandestine operations in Portugal, and they each offered Ortiz a commission. Ortiz was determined to return stateside, though, to see his ailing mother in California. Sailing from Lisbon, Ortiz reached New York on December 8, 1941. Before leaving for California, he was debriefed by both Army and Navy intelligence officers. He also submitted paperwork for a commission. After reuniting with his mother and resting for several months, he began wondering what had become of his application for a commission. Finally, fed up with the delay, he enlisted in the Marine Corps. The arrival of Peter Ortiz at Paris Island Recruit Depot in June 1942 caused quite a stir. He was more experienced and decorated than any of the drill instructors. Colonel Lewis, Lewis Jones, a decorated veteran of World War I, and the chief of staff at Paris Island sent a packet to the commandant of the Marine Corps with Ortiz's application for a commission and the record of Ortiz's service with the Foreign Legion. Also in the packet was a personal note from Colonel Jones saying, Private Ortiz has made an extremely favorable impression upon the undersigned. His knowledge of military matters is far beyond that of the normal recruit instructor. Ortiz is a very well set up man and makes an excellent appearance. 
In fact, actually, Ortiz is a very, very handsome person, and this plays later in, in the fact that he got into movies. In my opinion, he has the mental, moral, professional, and physical qualifications for the office for which he has made application. This time, Ortiz's application was acted upon immediately, and in August 1942, Peter Ortiz was commissioned a second lieutenant. He remained at Paris Island for another two months as an assistant training officer before going to parachute school at Camp Lejeune. Already a qualified jumper from his service with the Legion, the course was merely a refresher for a tease. And we're going to have to stop there and take a break, so stay with us. We'll be right back. You've been listening to Being Catholic with Bob Johnston on Catholic Spirit Radio. If you have some extra time, put those hours to use for the Lord. With Catholic Spirit Radio's growing radio network, we have three new behind-the-scenes volunteer positions. If you're interested, call the station. 309-807-2427. Volunteers are specifically needed for each of these roles. First, an energetic and experienced event manager is needed to coordinate our spring and fall on-air fundraisers. Give us a call if that's you. Second, Catholic Spirit Radio needs one to two hours every two or three weeks from a volunteer or a team of two for lightweight general cleaning at our normal location. Give us a call if you and a friend are interested. And third, we are in need of one to two spirit liaisons from each of these areas, Rock. Harvard, Morris, DeKalb, Sycamore, Lincoln, Pontiac, and Clinton. These individuals will assist with informational tables at your local events. Give us a call if you can help out. Become part of our radio mission in 2024. Volunteer at Catholic Spirit Radio. 309-807-2427. Hey, this is Father Mitch Pacwa, host of Open Line Wednesday. For me, Catholic Radio is a chance to speak and hear our Catholic doctrine, consider it, Think about it, apply it to everyday life, and be blatantly in the public with it. And I am so thankful to you for being an important part of the Lord's plan. By participating and listening, invite others to listen and hear Open Line. Three Kings Gifts has sacramental and seasonal gifts, religious medals, rosaries, and more on the College Avenue Epiphany Church campus in Normal. Three Kings Gifts is open 10 to 3.30 on Thursday and Friday, 8 to 1 on Sunday. Profits help charitable organizations. Hi, this is John Hall, president of Catholic Spirit Radio. Do you enjoy our programming? Well, we need your support to keep the programming at Catholic Spirit Radio on the air. If you already give, thank you. We appreciate your help. If you haven't given, we need your help now. To donate, go online at catholicspiritradio.com. That's catholicspiritradio.com. Or mail your donation to Catholic Spirit Radio, 108 Boykins Place, Normal, Illinois, 61761. Or stop by 108 Boykins Place. God bless you and thank you for your support of Catholic Spirit Radio. A warm welcome. Welcome to our new Catholic Spirit Radio listeners in Rockford. We hope you are inspired and informed by our quality programs. Tell others about Catholic Spirit Radio now heard in the Rockford area on 88.9 FM and catholicspiritradio.com. Hi, this is Bob Johnston. You're listening to Being Catholic. We're back from our break. And we're talking about uh, a James Bond type of hero from back in World War II, Peter Ortiz. And we're talking about the fact that uh, this man was uh, in the Foreign Legion, and now he has become an officer in the United States Army. And uh, that he was a qualified uh, parachute jumper. And uh, he was uh, sent for training, and he he already was so good at things that uh, he was made uh, an instructor himself. It goes on here, it says, 
Marine Corps headquarters decided Lieutenant Ortiz, with his fluency in French, Arabic, and German, and his five years with the Legion in North Africa, would be of exceptional value to the U.S. Army, which landed on beaches in Morocco and Algeria on November 8th in Operation Torch. Things were now moving fast for Ortiz. On December 3rd, he was promoted from second lieutenant to captain, skipping the normal step to first lieutenant. On December 21st, he flew to Tangier, Morocco, where he was assigned duties as an assistant naval attaché, a cover for his real mission of organizing and leading a patrol of Arab tribesmen to gather intelligence behind German lines in Tunisia, a part of an office of strategic services, that is, the OSS operation. The OSS was the creation of Major General William Donovan, a Medal of Honor recipient in World War I. The mission of the OSS was collecting intelligence and conducting special operations behind enemy lines. Wild Bill Donovan said his ideal candidates for, U- for OSS operations are PhDs who can win a bar fight. With exceptional intelligence, fluency in several languages, a combat record second to none, and an escape from a German prison camp, Peter Ortiz was exactly the kind of man that Donovan wanted. During January 1943, Ortiz led an OSS recon patrol behind enemy lines that gathered critical intelligence until his squad clashed with a German patrol in a fierce firefight. Though wounded, Ortiz continued throwing grenades with such accuracy that the Germans broke contact. The Purple Heart was added to Ortiz's decorations. General Donovan was highly impressed, not only by Ortiz's reconnaissance patrol and in his valor in battle, but also by the professional quality of Ortiz after action, after action, Ortiz's after-action report. Donovan asked that Ortiz be assigned to the OSS full-time. Ortiz spent time recuperating in a hospital at Algiers and then in Washington, D.C. In May 1943, Ortiz was assigned to the OSS's Naval Command. In July, he flew to London for training for a mission behind enemy lines in France. The mission would be to a mountainous region of southeastern France known as the Hot Savoy, which borders Switzerland and Italy. There were large numbers of free French in the region, particularly on the Vercors Plateau, immediately south of Grenoble. Generals Charles de Gaulle and other French leaders in exile thought the partisans at Vercors, if well-armed and trained, would offer stout resistance to the Germans and divert German men and material from Normandy when D-Day arrived. On the moonless night of January 6, 1944, a British agent, a French agent, and Peter Ortiz parachuted onto the Vercors Plateau in an operation codenamed Union. They were dressed in civilian clothes, but carried their military uniforms in packs. They quickly made contact with French partisans, or Maquis, as they were known locally. The British agent later said, Ortiz, who knew not fear, did not hesitate to wear his United States Marine captain's uniform in town and country alike. This cheered the French, but it alerted the Germans, and the mission was constantly on the move. 
reports of an American Marine leading Maquis raids and ambushes caused the Gestapo in Hot Savoy to increase their interrogations of French farmers and townsfolk. Ortiz seemed a ghost-like figure, appearing here and there and then disappearing. He walked into villages in his uniform in the middle of the day to the cheers of the townsfolk and was gone before German soldiers arrived. He led raids that stole German vehicles or set fire to German supply dumps. He rescued four downed RAF pilots, and then he led them through southern France and across the Pyrenees to Spain. One night, Ortiz, wearing a long cape, strolled into a town and entered a cafe where three German officers were drinking and cursing the Maquis and the American Marine who was leading them. The filthy American swine, they shouted. They looked up to see a tall, lean-faced man staring at them. The man pulled back his cape to reveal a Marine uniform and drew two semi-automatic Colt 45s. He opened fire riddling the Germans before they could unholster their sidearms, and then he disappeared into the night. In late May 1944, after nearly five months of such daring do, Ortiz was pulled out of her course by an airplane with special short-field takeoff and landing capabilities and flown to London. Decorated with the Navy Cross, he was promoted to major. Ortiz spent the next two months preparing for another OSS mission behind enemy lines, codenamed Union 2. This time, Ortiz would lead five enlisted Marines, an Air Force captain, and a French officer. The French officer would carry documents identifying him as an American Marine. All members of the group would wear their uniforms. On August 1, 1944, they parachuted from an American B-17 onto a drop zone at Vercors. The parachute of one of the Marines failed to open, and he died upon hitting the ground. The others landed safely, and within days, Ortiz and his team were in heavy action. At one point, the Germans maneuvered the Americans into a steep walled canyon and had them surrounded. Surrender seemed the only option, but when night fell, Ortiz led his team out of the trap, crawling silently and undetected through the German lines. On August 16th, Ortiz and others began to cross a road when a German troop convoy came speeding around a curve and was suddenly upon them. The truck screeched to a halt, and out came dozens of German soldiers, firing their weapons as soon as their feet hit the ground. The Americans raced to the protection of a building and houses of a roadside village and returned fire. The German firepower was overwhelming, though, and the residents of the town implored the Americans to surrender before the town was destroyed. Ortiz ordered his men to cease fire and shouted to the Germans. The withering German fire slackened, and Ortiz stepped out from cover and began walking towards the German lines. When the German commander came forward, Ortiz said he would order his men to surrender only if the commander would guarantee the villagers would not be harmed. When the commander gave his word, Ortiz had his men come out from cover and assemble next to him. He called them to attention and ordered them to provide no information other than that required by the Geneva Convention. The German commander was so impressed with Ortiz and his men 
that he told his troops to treat the Americans with nothing but respect. The Americans were transported by truck from one German army camp to another until they finally reached a POW camp in northern Italy. From there, they were put aboard a train with boxcars full of French, British, and American prisoners. The train took them hundreds of miles north to a POW camp in Germany near the North Sea port of Bremen, arriving there at the end of September 1944. The camp was divided into two separate compounds, one for officers and the other for enlisted men. Ortiz found himself with some 400 other officers, nearly all of them British. Only three, including Ortiz, were American. The senior Allied officer was a British Royal Navy captain. Upon meeting him, Ortiz asked about plans for escape and was told there would be no escape attempts. Major Ortiz immediately declared himself senior American officer and said American POWs would plan to escape. On the night of December 18th, Ortiz and an American Navy lieutenant spent more than an hour cutting and crawling through a series of wire fences before reaching an open field and making a dash for freedom. Searchlights illuminated the running Americans, and they were soon captured and locked in solitary confinement. On April 10, 1945, with Allied forces moving into Germany, the Germans decided to move most of the prisoners to a POW camp at Lübeck, a port on the Baltic, about 120 miles to the northeast. The prisoners began the trek, marching in a column along the side of a road, when a couple of RAF Spitfires swept down the column and fired. While most in the column dove for cover, Ortiz dashed into nearby woods. Two Americans and one Englishman followed him. With the Spitfires gone, German guards ordered the prisoners back into a column, and the march began again. No one seemed to have noticed the disappearance of Ortiz and the others. The escapees moved only at night, hoping to encounter British troops, but all they ever saw were Germans. After 10 days of narrowly escaping detection and with nothing to eat, Ortiz decided they should return to their old POW camp and see if any food was left behind. They walked into the camp, and the few guards there, anticipating a German surrender, mostly ignored them. Among the few prisoners still there were, were the enlisted Marines from Ortiz's OSS group. A week later, a British armored division finally reached the camp. Most of the remaining prisoners eagerly boarded trucks for transportation to the rear. But not Ortiz and his men. Ortiz asked if his group could join the British division. As Ortiz later put it, we Marines wanted to join this unit in order to bag a few more Germans before hunting season closed. The British refused and the Americans were sent to the rear. Ortiz was debriefed by an OFS, OSS officer, and then the commander of the U.S. Navy's 12th Fleet decorated Ortiz with the Second Navy Cross. By this time, the war in Europe was over, and Ortiz requested combat duty in the Pacific. By July 1945, he was in California preparing a team for an OSS mission to Indochina, but the atomic bombs in August ended the war. Ortiz returned to Hollywood as a technical advisor, beginning with 13 Rue Madeleine 
a World War II spy thriller released in 1947 starring James Cagney. Director John Ford, a veteran of the Navy and the OSS, who was involved in his own daring do when he parachuted behind Japanese lines into a Burmese jungle, offered Ortiz a role in She Wore a Yellow Ribbon, starring John Wayne. Suddenly, Ortiz was an actor. And as I was mentioning, if you see a picture of Ortiz, which is here in the magazine, he was a very, very handsome figure and, and looked extremely handsome in a military uniform. Yeah, and, he was six foot two and a very athletic, of course, and very handsome man. <laughs> just up till now, I mean, the the life he lived, I mean, more adventure packed into a few years than most people would ever have in, in 10 lifetimes. Yeah, one of his escape attempts, I don't know if you're getting to that, where the where he had the motorcycle. Yeah, I think I, I mentioned that when he, when he you mean when he uh, burned up the gasoline dump? Or was uh, that a different time? That was a different time, I think. Yeah, I think but, you looked uh, up some more information. It on reminded it. me of, and I think it. The Great it, Escape? Yes. Yeah, that was, uh, was uh, what's the name? Uh, on the motorcycle. Yeah, uh Oh, why can't I? Steve, uh, Steve McQueen. Yeah. Yeah, Steve McQueen. I think it was kind of a portrayal of what he did. Yeah, it was. Because McQueen was headed towards uh, Switzerland, wasn't he? Yeah, one of the times Ortiz did get thrown into the cooler. Remember, like, yeah. uh, McQueen got thrown? Because I think the great escape was sort of like a... You know, a patchwork of a number of escapes that uh, right the, the, attempts, uh, yeah. escape attempts the Allies pulled. Yeah, Ortiz, you know, and he escaped that one time, and he he got uh, over the Pyrenees and stuff into France on his own. And then another time, he got four American RAF pilots who were you know, behind yes. enemy lines and didn't know what to do. He got them out and uh, got them over the Pyrenees and so forth and into Spain and and got them out. Yeah, he wear his uniform, American uniform, and. Get on his motorcycle and just drive through the, all the towns. Yeah, he did in that. plain sight. He did that, and uh, the thing is, is that we'll talk a little bit about also near the end here. You know what the, the fact is, is he was very aggressive. He volunteered to stay longer in the area to continue his fight against Germans. And people might wonder, well, is this uh, you know is this compatible with Catholicism and so forth? And of course, it is. And uh, we'll go into if we have the time a little bit why that is the case. But in my opinion. We need more heroes uh, like Ortiz. Not not just the more heroes. We have those heroes yet today, but we need a country that appreciates them. And I think we need a people with the the uh, vim and vigor and the sense of rightness and so forth and the uh, goodness that Ortiz had, that he's fighting for a just cause and that it's necessary for people to do this. And I think he had the country and people behind him and the movie industry behind him and, uh, you know, our whole... Uh, social uh, culture behind them, and we need that again. We need to understand that uh, we have to stand for something, and we need men like this, and we need to back them up. And I think we've lost that a lot, and I think we need to regain it. What do you think, Lynn? Right. We need heroes, true heroes, good heroes. Uh, AI, robots, and so forth are not going to be our heroes, and we need real heroes. That's for sure. At any rate, uh, uh, Ortiz uh, returned to Hollywood as a technical advisor, as I said. 
and he made the movie with the 13 Rue Madeleine, a World War II spy thriller. He got involved with uh, John Ford, and he got a, a, a part in uh, She Wore a Yellow Ribbon with John Wayne. I don't know how many people have seen that. You probably have seen maybe uh, on TV. Uh, and they that has local ties, yeah. too. Maybe after the break here, we can talk about it. So we're going to stop here. We'll take a break. I'll finish the article. There's just a few more paragraphs left, and then we'll talk a little bit about Ortiz, and we'll talk a little bit about uh, the idea of a just war and so forth. So stay with us. We'll be right back. You've been listening to Being Catholic with Bob Johnston on Catholic Spirit Radio. If you have some extra time, put those hours to use for the Lord. With Catholic Spirit Radio's growing radio network, we have three new behind-the-scenes volunteer positions. If you're interested, call the station. 309-807-2427. Volunteers are specifically needed for each of these roles. First, an energetic and experienced event manager is needed to coordinate our spring and fall on-air fundraisers. Give us a call if that's you. Second, Catholic Spirit Radio needs one to two hours every two or three weeks from a volunteer or a team of two for lightweight general cleaning at our normal location. Give us a call if you and a friend are interested. And third, we are in need of one to two spirit liaisons from each of these areas. Rock Harvard, Morris, DeKalb, Sycamore, Lincoln, Pontiac, and Clinton. These individuals will assist with informational tables at your local events. Give us a call if you can help out. Become part of our radio mission in 2024. Volunteer at Catholic Spirit Radio. 309-807-2427. Hey, this is Father Mitch Pacwa, host of Open Line Wednesday. For me, Catholic Radio is a chance to speak and hear our Catholic doctrine, consider it, think about it, apply it to everyday life, and be blatantly in the public with it. And I am so thankful to you for being an important part of the Lord's plan. By participating and listening, invite others to listen and hear Open Line. Three Kings Gifts has sacramental and seasonal gifts, religious medals, rosaries, and more on the College Avenue Epiphany Church campus in Normal. Three Kings Gifts is open 10 to 3.30 on Thursday and Friday, 8 to 1 on Sunday. Profits help charitable organizations. Hi, this is John Hall, president of Catholic Spirit Radio. Do you enjoy our programming? Well, we need your support to keep the programming at Catholic Spirit Radio on the air. If you already give, thank you. We appreciate your help. If you haven't given, we need your help now. To donate, go online at catholicspiritradio.com. That's catholicspiritradio.com. Or mail your donation to Catholic Spirit Radio, 108 Boykins Place, Normal, Illinois, 61761. Or stop by 108 Boykins Place. God bless you and thank you for your support of Catholic Spirit Radio. A warm welcome. Welcome to our new Catholic Spirit Radio listeners in Rockford. We hope you are inspired and informed by our quality programs. Tell others about Catholic Spirit Radio now heard in the Rockford area on 88.9 FM and catholicspiritradio.com. Hi, this is Bob Johnston. You're listening to Being Catholic right here on Catholic Spirit Radio. We're talking about a World War II hero that is uh, very comparable to James Bond, Peter Ortiz. We're talking about all of the daring do that he did and the adventures that he had during World War II and uh, all of the uh, men and so forth that he led and uh, the fact that uh, this man was both uh, in the French Foreign Legion and the, the United States Marines and that he spoke four or five languages 
he did things that you would expect to see in the movies uh, and stunts and so forth that were done by special effects and uh, special stuntmen and so forth. Ortiz lived this, if for real, and did these things himself. And uh, then, of course, after the war, he was uh, got involved in Hollywood and became a <clears throat> consultant for uh, World War II-type movies and movies that took place uh, in the Middle East, uh, deserts and so forth, where he spent much of his time in the Foreign Legion and also as an American uh, fighting for the Marines. And then eventually he became an actor in uh, himself. He received uh, many medals uh, from the United States uh, itself, and he received uh, a number of times some of the highest medals uh, from the French. Uh, he just he lived a life that uh, most of us wouldn't live, like I said, in 10 lifetimes. And he did this in a very, packed it into a very short period of time. It goes on here, it says, <clears throat> Ortiz eventually appeared in five of John Ford's movies and in 27 movies altogether as well as in two television series. In Retreat Hell, and I, I hope people have seen that movie. I've seen it. It was a very good movie. In Retreat Hell, the best movie about the Marines in Korea, Ortiz played a Marine major exactly what he was. While Peter Ortiz was acting, Operation Secret, a movie inspired by Ortiz's real-life Daring Do, was released in 1952. Cornell Wilde played Ortiz, called Peter Forrester, in the movie, but as usual, Hollywood took liberties with what really occurred. Ortiz died in 1988, leaving behind a wife and a son, who by then was a Marine officer himself. Ortiz was buried with full military honors in Arlington National Cemetery. In attendance were not only high-ranking American officers, but also high-ranking French officers. Peter Ortiz died a hero for two nations. And uh, it's quite a, an adventure, quite a story, and I think we need people like that again. But more important, don't you think, Lynn, we need a country that understands uh, this kind of necessity and a culture that backs up heroes like this and uh, a culture that sees opportunity and sees uh, decency and so forth that needs to be protected and stops this constant woke nonsense of everybody being oppressed. Oh, Definitely. You have to have the moral guidelines, and you have to follow them. Just having them written don't make it, you know, it, it doesn't make a dent on anything. You have to follow them. And there are reasons for all these things. And society's taken centuries upon centuries putting these things together, and seems like we're demolishing them as fast as we can. Abolishing, I say, rather than demolish. We've got to get back to get to build this admiration, and we need to have leaders we can stand behind and look to for for their examples. We've certainly lost all that. We certainly need that, and the the, the thing is, is that this this constant idea that uh, somehow or another there's uh, two groups. I mean, the, the people. In a society, somehow there is a monstrous oppressor, and then all these oppressed people, and uh, certain people, <laughs> all of our values being taken from from this paradigm that doesn't really work at all. You know, all people have suffered in some way or another. All people are tainted 
we, we none of us uh, sees the future as, as uh, clearly, you know, as we should. Uh, all of us make mistakes. Uh, people will look back and judge our civilization and our country, and uh, we can pray and hope that they don't judge us as hard as a lot of the people in our country are judging earlier peoples who have had to cope with and live in the kind of societies and the kind of uh, uh, problems and and uh, adversaries and so forth that they found and, and did the best they could. And if you look at the overall record of America, our country, it's a good one. And if you look at the overall record of uh, other countries, many, many others have done far worse than we have. And we need to get rid of this whole woke idea that somehow or another there is this pure lily white group of people who point out all of the things that are wrong with the society. And then there's this other group of people who are some kind of oppressors going around oppressing everybody. Uh, this country has stood a lot on for the good. And, of course, it has its sins as well as any country has its sins. And it's probably done as good of a job as any country ever has in overcoming those sins and trying to move on to a better life and better place for everybody. And this constant... Uh, downgrading of heroes and poo-pooing of uh, anything that uh, stands out uh, as being somehow or another wrong or corny or something else. Uh, this has got to stop. And I would like to take the time here. People might say, well, what about the Catholic Church itself? Doesn't it condemn the kind of things that uh, Ortiz did, you know, shooting down these Germans and so forth? And the answer is no. We were at war, and the war was considered a just war. And, uh, and even though it was a just war, nevertheless, war brings with it all kinds of human flaws, in, as well as bringing out the heroism in people. And uh, it uh, is necessary in many cases for uh, people to defend the kind of life that needed to be defended. Can you imagine what it had, what it would have been like if Europe? And maybe even the United States would have fell prey to what was going on in Germany and the Holocaust and uh, the, the whole movement that was going on there if somebody didn't stand up and stop it. And uh, the people that do that, when you scratch them, they're going to have flaws just as much as anybody else. But nevertheless, when you look at what Peter Ortiz did, he was a hero of the highest rank. Yes, he was. And, he uh, was. Audie Murphy was another one. Was another one. And I'm, I'm going to read here a little bit, and I think this is a good jumping-off point. Maybe we'll do the, the full article here uh, next week. Uh, this is an article talking about undermining just war. And it's, you know, in other words, our country, our woke, whatever, culture is often attacking and underlining, undermining just war and looking at our past and going back and picking at everything that this country has done and uh, trying to show that uh, the wars and so forth we fought were, uh, there were downsides to them and so forth and, uh, you know, take away from the nobility of what we were doing and uh, reduce it to some kind of power play. And... Uh, using the idea that uh, all wars are bad and uh, they can't be justified. And so there's an article here in uh, the magazine First Things, and it's in the March 2024 issue, and uh, it's uh, called Undermining Just War. It's written by Richard Castleman, who is an active-duty uh, Air Force officer. 
and it goes into the whole idea of uh, war and capital punishment and other things. It's a fairly long article, and uh, I can't go into the whole article, but I want to talk about the uh, article that addresses what a just war is, and this, of course, is taken from the teaching of the Catholic Church. And so you get an understanding of what it is and uh, why it's permissible. So I'll read this. Is there any more you want to say about I just Peter wanted Ortiz? to yeah, add, if you want to look up uh, about a just war in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, it's in paragraphs 2307 through 2317. It gives you the outline what consists of a light of just war. Okay. Say that again, What where it's from. It's from uh, paragraphs 2307 to 2317. Okay, good. Be a good idea if you have a catechism, you should really to take that out. And I think every that. Catholic should have a catechism. Yeah, exactly, because uh, it, we really have a good one anymore. The new one that has been proved, everybody should get it, and uh, it will answer a lot of questions for you. I'm reading this here. It says, in Romans 13.4, St. Paul authorizes the political sovereign to use the power of the sword to avenge wrongdoing. Pontiffs, doctors of the church, and other important figures have interpreted this description of legitimate authority as applying to the political sovereign, both internally and externally. The state may punish both domestic and foreign offenders when the sovereign judges it necessary for the common good. Aquinas quotes Augustine on this point, quote, A just war is wont to be described as one that avenges wrongs when a nation or state has to be punished. Only legitimate political authority, the highest authority tasked with care for the common good of a political community, is authorized to use lethal force to punish. In the Christian tradition, as a rule, all private killing must be unintentional, justified under the principle of double effect. The paradigmatic case is self-defense, which Aquinas discusses in Summa uh, 2, 40, and 64. And a, a, a particular case, uh, example, for a particular example is self-defense. Uh, again, in self-defense, one does not desire the death of the attacker. One wishes simply to end the assault and will be satisfied if the assailant deserted, desisted, if the assailant desisted or fled. It is permitted by natural law. In other words, self-defense is permitted by natural law. It's a natural thing to do. You have a right to defend yourself and your family. But self-defense isn't the same thing as war, and it's not the same thing as just war. Self-defense has to stop when when the uh, attack ceases or, you know, the person is no longer in danger. Uh, and uh, the if a potential killer or person trying to do you harm ceases and desists, runs away or something like that, then your job is to inform the authorities and no longer, you know, you no longer need to pursue in self-defense. <clears throat> you don't have the right to, to you know, exercise the power of capital punishment in that case. The authority to inflict death as punishment is reserved to God because he is the exclusive arbiter of life and death. <coughs> Pardon. Uh, in the classic natural law tradition of, of, of 
tradition, offensive killing is permissible only when it is authorized by a legitimate political authority deriving its power from God. And that's, again, Romans 13.4. So, and such an authority may kill only under very strict conditions. In the context of international relations, the elaborations of these restrictions produce what we call the tradition of just war. In other words, a legitimate political authority is under the rule of God. All, the Catholic Church teaches all legitimate political authority comes from God. Authorities are endowed with their power by God himself. And so a just war is permitted to legitimate authorities who are have their power from God in certain cases and in, under certain conditions with certain restrictions. According to Just War principles, this declaration allows the wrong nation to engage in offensive war at any time against enemy forces, even in enemy territory, precisely <clears throat> the pursuit that is not permitted in cases of private self-defense. In other words, a war can permits offensive actions that uh, you can go on the offense, which private self-defense does not permit. In other words, just war involves offensive killing, action initiated to protect territorial integrity and exact retribution for an unjust attack. In this respect, speaking of just war as undertaken only in self-defense is mistaken or at least misleading. In other words, a just war is not taken only in self-defense. A just war can go beyond that. It can incorporate self-defense, but under just war regulations, the offended party can then move on the offense itself to make sure that whatever the threat and danger is to its people, that danger is stopped and eliminated. Modern defensive wars are not, not actually akin to individual self-defense because we are never permitted to intend to kill in self-defense. In self-defense, we intend to defend ourselves, and killing is incidental to that. We're not out there to intentionally eliminate the, the offensive uh, person or, or uh, force itself. The intention is just to keep it from doing any harm. Yet intentional killing of combatants, offensive killing, is the very object of most military actions, even when it is undertaken in a just uh, cause. Why do we permit intentional killing in just war, but condemn it in instances of private killing? After all, both cases can involve responses to grave violations of justice. The crucial distinction is this. Killing is war is under the command of a legitimate authority, whereas defensive killing by itself is not. And that's the whole situation, that in a just war, a legitimate uh, holder of authority, a legitimate holder of political authority under God, is doing in a restricted way the defending of a nation, and it has the right to go on the offense to do that, or to, if it's not a nation, it's, you know, a group of people that it stands for. And, and so all authority comes from God, and if this authority is used justly, then that authority is the authority to carry on offensive actions against a, an offender, and uh, that is what the, the whole essence of just war is. Right, and uh, it does not mean that you carry out orders just because they are orders. They have to be just orders. 
Exactly. They have to be, right, it has to be legal orders. It has to be within the realm of the authority that the legitimate political power has. And all of this is being done here by Peter Ortiz in legally and rightfully. And so it would be with the approval of the understanding with Catholicism in the first place. And we need to have this understanding again. We need to have heroes and we need to understand that this nation has stood uh, for the defense of a lot of helpless peoples over time. And of course, it's had its own sins as every single nation does and every single peoples has. There is no people without sin. There are no people that are perfect. There's no nation that is perfect. And our nation has done probably as good of a job in this respect as any nation ever has in the history of the earth. So uh, it's time to stop this woke nonsense of everybody is oppressed uh, or all the certain people are oppressed under an oppressor and the oppression never goes away. It goes away. And uh, we need to look at some of the great things we have done and invite people to join with us in doing those things again and incorporate uh, everyone under these just laws. So at any rate, we'll have to stop here. St. Michael, the Archangel, defend, defend us in, in battle. battle. Be our protection against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray. And do thou, Prince of the Heavenly Host, by the power of God, thrust into hell Satan and all evil spirits who wander through the world for the ruin of souls. Amen. You've been listening to Being Catholic with Bob Johnston on Catholic Spirit Radio. If you'd like to contact Bob, email bob at catholicspiritradio.com. Again, that's bob at catholicspiritradio.com. Catholic Spirit Radio relies on your support to bring programming like this and EWTN 24 hours a day. Please help keep Catholic Spirit Radio on the air with your generous support. Donate online at catholicspiritradio.com or send a donation to Catholic Spirit Radio, 108 Boykins Place, Normal, Illinois, 61761. That's Catholic Spirit Radio, 108 Boykins Place, Normal, Illinois, 61761. Catholic Spirit Radio is a 501c3, and all donations are tax-deductible. Thank you for your support of Catholic Spirit Radio.